Our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, thank you that we can find our identity in you. God, we are not who the world says we are. We are not who the opinions of people close to us say we are. We are not who our own doubts and fears say we are. But we are children of God. And as such, we are who you say we are. And so we look into your word, Father, because that's where we find who we are in Christ. And as we study today, I pray, Father, for anybody who might be listening who knows you, may this be a message of comfort. For anybody who's listening who doesn't, I pray your Holy Spirit would work and draw them to yourself. In all things, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read these five verses. And, oh yeah, we're going to have fun today. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood, oh, excuse me, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you can all imagine how much fun this is going to be. This week, we are going to have some very deep and important theological content. And we know that we're moving into the section, or we've moved into the section of Hebrews that is more about application. I think this passage has the greatest application of Scripture to anybody's life. Because this passage is about one of two things. Salvation or judgment. And I know judgment's not a popular thing for people to preach about, but guys, the Bible talks about judgment. So we need to talk about judgment. For those of us who believe in Jesus, most of what we talk about today won't necessarily apply to us because we have been delivered from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us that. We're going to revisit that scripture a little later. However, this should serve as a motivation for us to reach the world around us with the gospel. For those who don't know Jesus, if there's anybody who's here, anybody who's going to hear this recording, anybody who's with us online today, listen very carefully. So point number the first one says back to the gospels. Because we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 12. We're only going to look at two verses there, but you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. But we're going to go back to Jesus' words on the one sin that cannot be forgiven in order to delve into our passage in Hebrews today. So by way of context in Matthew chapter 12, 
Before Jesus said the words we are about to read, he was accused of casting out demons by the power of the devil. Now he pointed out to his accusers that this was foolish because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And he said the words we are about to read. He pointed out then that we are known by the fruit and the words that proceed from our hearts. That's what comes after the passage we are about to read. Can I ask somebody kindly to turn the heaters down? I'm very warm and they're very loud. So with that mind, we're going to read about Jesus' warning of what is the actual unforgivable sin. Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Our question then becomes this. Why would Jesus tell us that we can blaspheme him? Or we can speak a word against him, and that can be forgiven. But if we blaspheme or speak a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not. That seems interesting to me, right? Kind of would think, maybe I can blaspheme whatever I want, just not Jesus. No, you can blaspheme whatever you want, including Jesus. Don't do it. Bad idea. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I don't know about any of you. I'm often fond of saying you're probably better than I am anyway. But before I was a Christian, oh, I blasphemed the name of Jesus on a regular basis. I used to use it as a swear word. Not anymore. I repented. Oh, have I repented. But I used to do it all the time. So you can imagine when I first got saved and I read this passage, whoo, freaked me out. So I had to ask somebody to tell me what it meant. And they told me pretty much what I'm about to tell you. I do want to note something, real quick, that if you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that means the Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force, which some people treat the Holy Spirit like, right? I'm a Star Wars fan. They say, may the force be with you. People treat the Holy Spirit like that, you know, inanimate, unthinking object that the quote-unquote mythical force is. But that's not. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. We have our relationship with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, that doesn't happen. We're going to talk about that. But he has to be a person in order for that to exist. Now, we're going to flip over. Uh, if you're in Matthew 12, you can make a real quick jaunt John chapter 16. And I should have already been there. So you got a moment. Oops, too far. There it is. In John chapter 16, Jesus teaches us about his Holy Spirit. We're going to pick up in verse 5. John chapter 16, starting in verse 5. 
God. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. There is so much in there about the Holy Spirit that we could spend a lot of time looking into, but we're not going to today. What does this passage tell us about the Holy Spirit? Well, it tells us that he is our helper. I love that word. In Greek, it's it, it, parakletos, or something like that. It starts with P. Um, but it means that he is our paraclete. It means he is our advocate or our helper. It means that he comes alongside of us and helps us. One of the things that he does in that role is drawing us to Jesus Christ so we can be saved. But he does that by convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I love that, right? Convicts us of sin because, um, oh, I, I lost it. Where is that? Of sin because they don't believe in me, right? Because if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, we are left. We are stuck in our sin. We have to be convinced of our sin. We have to know that we are sinners who can't save ourselves in order to come to Jesus Christ to begin with. So the Holy Spirit starts there. He convicts us of righteousness, Jesus says, because I go to my Father and you'll see me no more. He convicts us of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the fact that righteousness can only be obtained through Jesus Christ and that is proven by the fact that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, that he alone is righteous. And then he convicts us of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged as will everybody else who refuses to repent of their sin and come to know Christ as Savior. The ruler of this world, we know, is the devil. And some people have a hard time with that. Uh, he has been defeated. Jesus has purchased the world for himself. Jesus does sit upon the throne and will sit upon the throne forever. But Satan is having a hard time with that. That is not his truth. Right? It, that's, it's the truth, but it's not Satan's truth. He's trying to figure some way out of it, but it's not going to work. He's already Praise God. Now the Holy Spirit then guides us into all truth. The first piece of truth that the Holy Spirit guides us into is what? The truth of the gospel. That Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. He reveals and declares to us the things of God, which is absolutely astounding. I don't know how many of you have this testimony, but this testimony is true of me. Before I got saved, I tried reading the Bible. Before I came to know Jesus, I had sort of a religious upbringing. I've mentioned it, to ma I've mentioned it many times before. Um, my mom was raised Lutheran. My dad was raised Catholic. And we went to a Presbyterian church. 
Now that's some kind of religious math that I can't do. Must be algebra. I, I don't know how, how Catholic plus Lutheran equals Presbyterian. Um, but I didn't grow up believing in Jesus Christ. I did grow up in church. So I kind of tried to read the Bible and I would open this book and it was, it was like reading a foreign language. It made absolutely no sense to me. And then the day came when the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. He drew me to Jesus Christ. The gospel was presented to me. I surrendered to him and I got saved. Woohoo! And somebody said, okay, well, you're a Christian. You should read the Bible. Oh, I've tried doing that before. It didn't work. Yeah, but you're a Christian. You should read the Bible. So my wife and I got married. Six weeks after I got saved, it's all connected. Because my wife was a sinner back then. I wasn't. <laughs> Thank you all for laughing. I was a terrible sinner. Much worse than she's ever been. But we did get, we did get married. And we, got, we had our, like we had a little party because we eloped. One of her uncles gave us a, a check. And I looked at her and I said, can I buy a Bible with this? I still have it. It was an NIV. I didn't know any better. Uh, I'm joking. NIV is nothing wrong with it. Um, but I, I bought an NIV and I bought little Bible highlighters. And, and in the course of about three or four months, I read the entire Bible. Now, when I was done, I didn't remember any of it. But what it started was a passion for the word of God. Because all of a sudden, when I opened it, and I started reading it, it started making sense. Why? Did I get smarter? We can all testify that that ain't true. No, because now I had the Holy Spirit inside of me. And he was like, yeah, see, 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 pay attention, listen, right there. You need that right now. Huh. And to this day, he does the same thing. And I am so grateful. And ultimately, he brings glory son as he does this it's the beauty of the holy spirit so if we couple this with what we are about or what we are taught about the holy spirit in places like john 14 first corinthians chapter 2 and many other places we can see that god uses the holy spirit to draw us to himself he comes alongside us he convicts us of our sin of jesus righteousness and the coming judgment and as he does this he reveals to us the truth of the gospel now, when we hear it in some way, shape, or form, that draws us to the Father through the Son. When we reject the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to the Father, we have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We have committed the unforgivable sin. And that is what Hebrews 10 is telling us. I'm going to explain that more. But that was the foundation we needed to go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. <coughs> I tried to cover the mic. That didn't work at all. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? 
After a person receives the knowledge of the truth, right, they hear, and by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, they have some understanding of the gospel. If they reject that, if they reject that by continually living in unrepentant, willful sin, there's no longer a sacrifice for them. In other words, there's nothing else. There's only one way to the Father. That way is through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit brings us to the place of understanding that. And if we reject that, there's no other way. Right? There's only one way to get to Monarch from Gunnison. Right? Am I right about that, Highway 50? Or is there another way? Well, I suppose you could. I mean, I'm sure, that's just for argument's sake. There's only one way to get to Monarch from Gunnison. Because all the other roads are gone. It snowed, they're packed in, they plowed Highway 50. But what if you decide, well, I want to get to Monarch, but I don't want to go that way? Are you going to get to Monarch? Not, not, not at all. Follow my illustration, man. You're not going to get there at all. Thank you, Aaron. You're going to pay for that on the pickleball court later. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those listening to the recording, I was informed that my illustration sucks. But for the sake of argument, right? you can't get there any other way. You can't get to the Father any other way but through Jesus Christ. You're not going to know about Jesus Christ any other way than the Holy Spirit revealing that truth to you. So instead of responding to the free gift of salvation offered to them through Jesus Christ, they reject the Holy Spirit's work in leading them to Jesus, and all that is left is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now, before I keep going, I'm going to add a quick caveat to this reality. And that question is, can you, you commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, do you commit it once and then that's it? And you're done and there's no hope? No. You want to know when that sin is actually cemented? When a person dies apart from Christ. Right? It's not like you can be 23 or let's go back. It's not like you can be 17 or 18 and blaspheme the Holy Spirit, because I did. I had people try to share the gospel with me. I had people try to bring me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I rejected it. And then I rejected it. And I rejected it. And I rejected it. And then one Sunday morning, I was hired to play in church, and the Holy Spirit was tired of me rejecting it, and he slapped me upside my head, and I listened. So I don't think if you go to a person and you share the gospel with them and they cuss you out and say they want nothing to do with it, that the hope is lost. I don't believe that. So you go back and you share the gospel again. And if they cuss you out, maybe they use a few less swear words, then you know you're making progress. <laughs> and maybe by the fifth or sixth time, they don't cuss you out at all. And you're like, wow, the Holy Spirit must be at work. And the Holy Spirit's going to get a hold of that person's heart. Now that person still has to respond. Holy Spirit's not going to force it. 
But we can keep going back and going back and going back. Now, if you share the gospel with somebody and they reject it until their dying breath, then all that's left is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the average Christ. And I've experienced that. Oh, it's hard. I told you the story of my dad. Uh, my dad and I did not have a great relationship. My parents got divorced when I was a teenager. Um, and over the years that followed, uh, when I got saved, my father mocked me, told me that I was a fool. When God called me to be a pastor, he got angry with me. His, the words out of his mouth, there's no money in that. I didn't say he was wrong. I'm just saying. No, the church takes good care of me. I don't need them. Um, but that was his response. He was upset when we dedicated our, our John when he was born. He was upset when we dedicated him instead of baptizing him. And then he got to the point where he got so angry with me that he didn't speak to me for nearly 10 years. And I had family members get mad at me. Why, why won't you talk to him? I said, I tried. He won't return my calls. And this was back when we had letters. He wouldn't return letters. Then we got email. Uh, I got my email, his email address from my brother. He wouldn't return email. He wouldn't talk to me. Because every time we talked, I shared the gospel with him. Finally, at near the end of his life, he, uh, he had diabetes. He was in a, in a nursing home. My father was a very unhealthy person. Not like me, you know, a picture of fitness. <laughs> I really appreciate how the things you're laughing at today. It's really encouraging. Um, <laughs> um, he was about to have his leg amputated because he hadn't taken care of himself. And my brother called me. And he said, Dad wants to talk to you. Okay. So I talked to him. I shared the gospel with him. The day before he went into surgery, I found a pastor near where he lived to go visit him, for which my brother called and yelled at me for. No, he didn't call me. I take that back. He sent me a text, but it was an unpleasant text. We went out to California, and I got to go see him. The last time I saw him alive, I shared the gospel with him again. Every single time, he rejected Every single time. The pastor who I sipped on called me afterwards and said, yeah, he, he let me pray for him, but he wouldn't listen. And then I got an email from my brother. I got an email. That's how close my brother was. Um, I got an email from him. I woke up on a Sunday morning. We were getting ready for church. No idea why I checked my email, because I usually don't check my email on Sunday morning. And I got an email that he had died. wife probably remembers this, I broke down and started to cry. Not because my dad was dead. We weren't, we weren't really close. But because I knew he had always rejected the gospel. And at that point, I had no more hope. Now, maybe the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart. Maybe before he took that dying breath, something clicked and he repented. I don't know. 
But were I a better man, probably not. At that moment, then the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is found out. Tell them I told you. Don't ever look at anybody in this world. I don't care who they are. I don't care how bad they are. I don't care how awful they act. I don't care how they treat other people. If they're breathing, there is hope for salvation. Guess whose job it is to tell them? Gabe. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's getting a little heavy. I had to do something. So he goes on. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 17.6. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has? Number one. Trampled the Son of God underfoot. Ooh, the word trampled here is really fun. It's katapateo, nothing to do with potatoes. Katapateo, and it means to reject with disdain. That's what to trample underfoot means. This is not just, yeah, no, I'm not interested. This is, I will not, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to talk about this. Get away from me. Shut up. To reject with disdain is to trample the Son of God underfoot who has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. This means that this person thinks Jesus' death on the cross was profane or unholy. Profane or unholy. It's not just that they don't want to believe. It's that they think nothing of the great sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And they have insulted the spirit of and herein lies the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The word for insulted here is enhubritzo. Say that three times fast. Or name your child that, I dare you. Ah, oh, little enhubritzo is home from school. And it means to be in a firm or fixed position, to be violent towards, abusive, reproach, or have shameful behavior towards. Right? This definition means this is not a one-time event, that you just one time reject the gospel. But this is a person who continually hardens their heart against the things of God. They have taken a position of utter rejection against the work of the Holy Spirit who's trying to bring them to salvation. Think about Pharaoh when Moses was there and God was delivering the children of Israel from Egypt. The first five plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Again, again, again. And finally, God said, fine. If that's the position you want to be in, then God hardened his heart. And God hardened his heart. And God hardened his heart. We read about this reality in Romans chapter 1. That he gave them up to their unclean passions and lusts. Why? They wouldn't listen. So God said, fine. You don't want to listen? Fine. Do what you want. The consequences are going to be really bad. Because we have free will. Now, if most of us are honest, we typically use our free will to do bad things. Um, but we have free will. And if we refuse, 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 we willfully continue in our sin, then God will go, okay. Now, Paul talks about that that he, we can do that 
Because hopefully it gets bad enough that that person hits proverbial rock bottom and they look up and they see the cross. But constant rejection. Listen to the words of John 33 through 36. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. You guys ever think about that? Right? Doctors say that four cups of coffee a day is normal. Thank you, Sandra. Yes! She was like, "Uh uh-uh. I don't agree with that either. Now, upon very good advice from someone sitting in this room, I do try to stop drinking coffee by, I think it's 2 o'clock, is is my goal. I usually get closer. Um, But, yeah, but that's what doctors say. What do doctors say? But, theoretically, there's a measure, right? There's a measure to the number of heartbeats each of us will get. It's a measure. I can't, is it 100 millions, millions, I don't remember. It's a lot, but there's a measure. There's only a certain amount you get. We talked about that a week or two ago. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's a measure of just about everything in our lives but one thing. That's how much the Holy Spirit can do in us. How much grace God can pour out on us through the Holy Spirit. How much power God can work through us by the Holy Spirit because he gives the Spirit without measure. I got that was a bit of a radish rub, but it was worth it. So he goes on, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the reality. For the last couple thousand years, churches, theologians, scholars, academics have complicated this. But it's that simple. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't, you don't. I love the simplicity of the gospel. What happens to the person who don't? Verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is for a non-believer, of course. This warning comes from what we know about the character and actions of God. This has been plainly revealed to us throughout the book of Hebrews. God has done everything possible to offer us salvation. He sent his only son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died as the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He took our punishment. Then he rose again, conquering sin and death. Then God sent his Holy Spirit to reveal to us these things, revealing to those things to us in his word, and revealing those things to us as he comes alongside, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He draws us to the Father, And we get this offer of salvation. What do we do with it? You guys ever get offers in the mail? Right? Hey, you qualify for a new personal loan. Shh. Hey, you you qualify for a new credit card. Shh. 
right? Constantly. But when the Holy Spirit draws you and you're presented with the gospel from the word of God and you are offered that free gift of salvation, then you have a choice. You submit your life to it or you reject it. When we submit our life to Jesus Christ, when we receive the free gift of salvation, then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and he applies this great salvation to our lives. And he empowers us for a life of service that honors God. Oh, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. But what happens to the person who rejects it? Number one, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I don't ever want to be on the wrong end of that statement. Nope. It comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. It's also quoted in Romans 12, 19. But the word for vengeance here is really important for us to understand. It's not the typical revenge that we think about, i.e. getting back at someone for something they did to us. Right? You wronged me. I'm going to get my revenge. It's not this, that's not what this word means. The word is ekdekesis. I really had fun with my Greek dictionary this week, in case you didn't know. The word is ekdekesis, and it means to carry out justice. It's a different word. So that phrase could be translated in English, justice is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Because ultimately, we either receive forgiveness for our sins through Jesus Christ, or we have to answer for those sins ourselves. And if we have to answer for those sins, God will be just. He will be fair. We were talking a little bit about that this morning in Sunday school. I don't ever pray for justice for anybody. Because I would never pray for justice for me. I don't want justice. I want grace. I want forgiveness and God's mercy. I would never look at God and go, all right, sometimes I read through the Psalms, right? And, and the psalmist will say something to the effect, oh, Lord, pour out your justice on me. And I'm going, oh, I know what I am. I know what kind of sinner I am. I don't want justice. I want grace. But for the person who rejects Jesus Christ, that justice will come. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Deuteronomy 32.26 is where that's quoted from. The word for judge there is krino, K-R-I-N-O, krino. And it means to try, condemn, and punish. So he will try them, right? And we see all this up in Revelation 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there, where they will stand before the great right throne judgment of God. The books will be opened, and they will be condemned accordingly. Try, condemn, punish. Only God can do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. I don't want to do it. I'm so glad. It's not my responsibility and never will be, and I'm very grateful for that. It's, but God will. He will. And it ends with, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We put that in context. If you have rejected Jesus Christ your entire life, and I know this isn't true of you guys, at least I hope not. If it is, let me know. We need to talk. But if you've rejected Jesus Christ, you've rejected the Holy Spirit drawing you, you've rejected his word, you've rejected his gospel, when you breathe your last breath, 
That is going to be the worst moment you can imagine. Right? Oh, fire and brimstone. Yeah, fire and brimstone. It's going to be bad. The lake of fire. A place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where the worm never dies and, uh, oh, oh, and the fire is never quenched. A place of utter separation from God. Uh-uh. I don't want to go there. And I don't want you to go there. So we preach the gospel. Now, if you, don't, if you come to our church and you don't believe the gospel, that is your fault. It's not my fault. It's not the fault of anybody sitting around you. Because we're faithful to the gospel here. At least we better be. And so imagine, to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this is what's interesting here. Because for those of us who are believers, the Bible tells us that God holds us in his hand. And nothing can take us out. I am very grateful for that. But here the word for hand, it literally means to fall into the power and instrument of God's judgment. It's not what we typically think of, a palm and, and, and fingers. It is the instrument through which God will judge. That's what that word means. To fall into the instrument of God's judgment is the most frightening thing I can think of. That, I just, there's nothing worse. Absolutely nothing worse. And it should cause, as it says here, fearful, terror. For the person who does not know Jesus. So there's two points I need to make and then we'll close. I promise. How are we doing? Oh, better than usual. We'll see. I'm not done yet. Bless you. Yeah, I heard that. There are two points I need to make before we close. One, for those of us who know Jesus, we should be comforted knowing that Jesus has delivered us from this by his precious blood and atoning sacrifice on the cross. It's that simple. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 That we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you know Jesus as Savior, you have received the free gift of salvation by his grace. There is no fearful eternity for you or I. Instead, what do we got to look forward to? Right? Streets of gold, streets of pearls, chicken fried steak food. I have, a, I have a theological belief that cannot be proven or disproven. I can't prove it's accurate, but nobody can prove it's wrong. That somewhere in heaven, there will be a tree that grows chicken fried steak. And people say, oh, but there won't be any death in heaven. We won't eat meat. God can make meat without death. He's God. He can do anything. He can fry it without a deep fryer. He's God. And that tree is going to grow right next to a river of pepper flavor. And I'm going to sit there, I'm going to dip my feet in the river, because it won't matter. I have pepper toes. I'm going to pluck chicken fried steak off the tree and dip it in the river. My feet are clean, it's okay. It's a different place. I'm going to sit there with Jesus. And he's going to tell me everything I need to hear. So even if it doesn't quite happen that way, it's going to be awesome. So for those who have to know Jesus, that's what we have to look forward to. Romans 3, 21 and 26 says that now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, as a substitutionary sacrifice by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just, sin was still punished, and the justifier he can make us righteous before God to the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That is the good news. And for those of us who know Jesus, that's where we sit. That's where our identity is at. That's where our future is at. That's where our salvation is at. Not in us, not in the horribleness of the world we live in, but in Jesus Christ. For the person who doesn't, for those who have rejected the Holy Spirit's work to draw them to God through Jesus Christ, all that is left is a fearful expectation of judgment, a fiery indignation that will devour and the fear of falling into the hands of judgment that belong to the living God. I don't want that for anybody. Not the person that I may hate the most in the world. You're not supposed to hate anybody. But for the person that, that, that I have the biggest problems with, the person I refuse to talk to, I don't want that even for them. I don't want that for anybody. And neither does God. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. As we close, there is only one unforgivable sin. And that is to reject the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. A person does this when they have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit to draw us to God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son. The beautiful reality is that no one has to experience the judgment that comes from that rejection. Right? We talked about that it isn't a one-time rejection. There's hope as long as there's life. But nobody ever has to experience that. God has given us the way out through Jesus Christ. When we turn from our sins and we believe in him, we will never face the judgment of God. But we have been delivered from that wrath through Jesus who took the wrath of his father for us on the cross. Mm. What do we do with this? What do we do with it? Right? Got to have a little practical application. Awesome. Can I borrow your bulletin? I didn't put it in my notes. I know there's, they're up there, right? Are there questions? Yeah, see? Somebody didn't. How are they not in my notes? Nothing but professional here. You know that already. Number one, have you turned from your sin and received the free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ? I ask it every week because I don't know. I don't know your heart. I can guess. I see the fruit in many of your lives, but I don't know everybody's heart. Only God does, and he's going to show it to you. And if you're here, if you hear this recording, or if you're online, and there's some part of you that's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Listen to what I said. Fearful expectation of fiery judgment. Oh, he's just being dramatic. No, I'm not. This is what the Bible says. This is why I fall on my knees before Jesus Christ and praise him for saving me 
because I will never face it. You want to make sure you don't either. And the only way to do that is to fall on your knees before Jesus Christ. So if there's anybody who needs that, I don't care where you're at. Leave us a, a message or a comment. Send us an email on our website. Come talk to me after service. But we don't assume anything. Number two. I've preached on this before, and I had people come up with me after to me afterwards and say, well, I'm worried that I've committed the unforgivable sin. Um, if you're worried about it, you haven't. I can, I can say that with pretty great confidence. The person who commits the unforgivable sin has intentionally rejected everything about the gospel, and they do so with anger, with disdain, with violence, and they do it over and over and over and over again, and then they die. If you're alive, you still have hope. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, you certainly haven't committed the unforgivable sin. And if you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you're worried that you may have committed the unforgivable sin, that's really easy to fix. Give your heart to Christ. Done. Number three, and this one turns for us as believers. Based on all we've learned throughout the book of Hebrews, are you resting in the full assurance on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Too many of us want to believe in Jesus, but then we think we have to add something to it. Or we're worried that if we make a mistake, we're going to lose our salvation, and he's not going to love us anymore, or something like that. No, that's not how any of this works. He did everything. We rest in him. Sometimes we try to take that rest back. Sometimes we, we, we give it to him, and then we pull it back. Not just in salvation, but all kinds of things. This is a whole other sermon. But I'm just going to tell you, many of you know this. Over the last month, month and a half, I have to give God so much glory. He has done a wonderful work in our lives. A month and a half ago, we owed the hospital $14,000. That's all but taken care of. God showed up and made the way. A week and two days ago, we owed the government $4,500 on our taxes. Now we're getting $1,500 back because we forgot to give the tax guy something. And he goes, what about that? Oh, well, we'll get you that. And he goes, woohoo, right? And God, just over and over and over and over again. It's been a lot of fun. When I got the bill from the hospital, I freaked out about a month and a half ago. And then I watched God take care of that. When I got the tax bill last Friday, I'm like, you got this. It's not worth my time. I didn't have to worry about it, and he took care of it. I just simply rested. Now, you all know me. I'm not going to probably do that next time. <laughs> but I was able to this time. It was cool. But the reality is, for us as believers, don't let the world distract you. Don't let your mistakes distract you. Don't let your thoughts distract you. Don't let any of that distract you from the fact that we can rest in Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives, but especially salvation. Then I'm going to la ask this last question. This, one, this one's a little mean. As believers who are exploring the reality of eternal judgment, what do you think that should motivate us to do? Preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, everything 
that I've taught you in baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you know me. I'm not a guilt trip kind of guy. That's not how I preach. That's not usually how I talk to people. Um, guilt trips. My daughter will tell me I'm very good at them, but usually only when I'm being snarky and I'm at home. Um, I'll say things like, oh, my coffee cup's empty. If somebody loved me, they'd get me more coffee. And my wife will let me just ask for a cup of coffee. Pookie, will you please make me a cup of coffee so I, you know, I don't die? You're probably thinking I'm just saying that for comedic effect. No, it's that bad. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big baby at home. But here's the reality. We know our ballot. Less than 2% of the people in our county go to church. 2% of 15,000 people. Roughly three or 4,000 people. No, three or 400, not three or 4,000. Three or 400, give or take. And you may think, wow, that's, you're being a little uh, dramatic again, aren't you? No, I'm not. I talk to the other pastors in town. I know what their attendance is. I know what our attendance is. Not a lot of people around here go to church. You know what that makes this? A mystery to us. This is our Judea and our Jerusalem. This is where, according to Acts 1.8, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. We have to consider this. I challenge you to consider two things, and then I'm going to shut up. Well, I'm going to pray, then I'm going to shut up. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing a song, then I'm going to shut up. So close. The first one is, you will never meet anybody who is not absolutely loved by God. You won't. I don't care who they are. I don't care how bad they are. I don't care who they vote for, or what platform they're running on, or what they think about anything. God loves them and sent his son so they could be saved. Number two, almost every single person you meet or interact with in our valley, almost every single one does not know Jesus Christ. And if God brought them into your life, it's your job to share. It's that simple. Oh, but what if they don't like me? Who cares? What if they get mad at me? Then we praise God for being counted worthy to suffer for his name. What if they cuss me out? I've been cussed out by family members. Doesn't feel good. But if I was obedient to God, then who cares? You know? What, what if it costs me money? What if it costs me something to do with work? What if it costs me something? Did Jesus say, only preach the gospel when it's convenient? Only preach the gospel when it's easy? Did Jesus say, go into all the world when you have nothing better to do and preach the gospel to those people who you are pretty sure will listen and won't get mad at you? That might be the message version. I like to pick on the message version. But that's not what it says. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have tribulation. Thanks, Lord. We're going to get to a passage in Hebrews that says, you haven't um, contended unto bloodshed. 
In other words, if somebody hasn't shot, stabbed, or beaten you for sharing the gospel, you got it easy. That's why we're here. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I don't want anyone to leave today and go, man, he was really mean. What if I don't know Jesus? Am I going to hell? Yes. <laughs> well, how do I fix that? Come to know Jesus. Super easy. I have a really hard time sharing the gospel. You think he was talking to me? Yes. But if we were honest with you, this is easy for me. I love this. This is super simple. Right? I, I, I don't get really nervous about preaching anymore. Unless I'm preaching in a new place. I don't get nervous about saying all this stuff to you guys. Sometimes when I'm out in the world and the Lord nudges me, that person right there, whoo, heart starts to beat. Mind starts to race. Right? It's not always easy. But it's always worth it. Following Jesus is always worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your great goodness and grace. We thank you for your son. And I pray, Father, for anybody who might be here, if somebody is listening to this message, I don't care when or where, if they do not have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Father, please, prick their heart, draw them to yourself, and save them. For those of us who are your followers, I pray, Father, that you would give us boldness to share your gospel, to love the world around us enough to risk rejection, to risk ridicule, to share the love of Jesus with others. May all we do be for your glory in Jesus' name.